Hello and welcome to the Berkeley Remix, a seasonal podcast series from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. In this podcast series, we draw on thousands of interviews to bring those stories to life. Please join us for the third season of the Berkeley Remix, entitled First Response, AIDS and Community in San Francisco. If you ask someone to define infectious disease, they might say something like, uh, germs get inside your body uh, where they try to survive and thrive, multiply until your immune system either fights it off or fails to and you die. Germs are opportunists, and one host is as good as any other. They seek out the path of least resistance in order to multiply and move on to new hosts. But in doing so, germs teach us a lot about who we are. Throughout history, epidemics have always exposed and often reinforced the social divisions in society. And people who get sick have a wide range of different advantages and opportunities. How sick people suffer depends on their place in the world. In other words, disease is always political. This podcast is about how people reacted to their first encounters with the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. The six episodes draw from the 35 interviews that Sally Smith-Hughes conducted in the 1990s. A historian at UC Berkeley's Oral History Office, Sally interviewed doctors, nurses, researchers, public health officials, and community health practitioners to learn about the unique ways that people responded to the epidemic. My name is Paul Burnett, and I'm the current historian of science for the Oral History Center. Sally conducted four sets of interviews with academic physicians trying to identify and understand the disease, nurses who pioneered a new model of care for the sick, public health officials, and community physicians who largely served the gay community, all from 1981 to 84. There are many other stories about this period in the epidemic, but as a historian of science and medicine, this was Sally's main focus. You're going to hear more from Sally in this podcast, so it's only fitting to introduce her. Welcome, Sally. It's great to see you. When I discussed the interviews with Sally, we talked about several key factors and themes that emerged from the interviews she conducted. San Francisco itself was a unique center of the gay population with ties between the community and the superstructure of the San Francisco government because um, largely gay people were fairly reliable voters. And so it behooved the government to pay particular attention to this very organized community. First of all, the line between the medical community and those who were getting sick was blurred for many reasons. There were gay men and women who were also members of the medical community that was fighting the disease, for one thing. There were also new types of community health organizations that served the gay community and the terminally ill, even before people became aware of the disease. These organizations were part of a gay liberation movement for political and social recognition in a context of a general culture of intolerance, discrimination, and hatred of homosexuals in society, all of which leads to another theme, trust. When public health authorities began educating the gay community about the disease and how to avoid getting sick, how could people be sure these efforts and policies 
weren't just another attempt to single out and limit the behavior of homosexuals. Sally and I also talked about the ways in which the epidemic had different and sometimes opposite effects on the wider public. As the disease took its toll, Americans would lose their favorite actors and artists, along with their friends, neighbors, and family members. In other words, the epidemic caused those in the LGBT community to appear both more threatening and more human. In these interviews, we hear stories of discrimination and hate on the one hand, and of hope and healing on the other. Sally's work allows us to look at human suffering as the engine of community rather than division, and highlights the efforts of medical practitioners to confront the disease by developing systems and techniques for caring for entire communities, not only patients, but also their friends and relatives, employers, and even the general public, all of whom were now living with AIDS. At the end of the 1970s, the mood in the United States was somber and anxious. The Vietnam War, unemployment and inflation, pollution, and the oil crises all contributed to the feeling that Americans were no longer in control of their destiny. While there was anxiety in San Francisco, there was also a thirst for change and an embrace of the future. New movements grew up around music, fashion, experiments with drugs, spirituality, and new lifestyles. Movements for women's liberation, the rights of the disabled, the protection of the environment, and for the protection and support of marginalized communities rose up all over the Bay Area in the 1970s, setting the mold for the new social movements of recent decades. There was one more group that found their voice by San Francisco Bay. The 1960s had seen some of the first organized protests by members of the gay community. In 1964, Life magazine named San Francisco the gay capital of the world. In 1972, San Francisco passed the first gay rights ordinance. And in 1975, State Assemblyman Willie Brown helped pass one of the first consenting adults laws that overrode previous laws that had been used to persecute homosexuals. In 1977, Harvey Milk became the world's first openly gay member of government, and in 1978, the first to be assassinated. This moment of acceptance, legal protection, and power for the gay community also produced a backlash that dovetailed with the rise of the new conservative politics nationwide. Despite this backlash, and to some extent because of it, the gay community in San Francisco became large enough to be very diverse, encompassing a wide range of identities, orientations, and political commitments. In this episode, we'll hear from healthcare and public health practitioners about what it meant to be gay in San Francisco in the 1970s, and how they defined their lives at a time when the meaning of their lives was being challenged from without and was evolving from within. Ultimately, San Francisco was a cosmopolitan gay citadel, where queer men, women, and trans folk could feel relatively safe to express themselves and meet one another without fear of attack, ridicule, or loss of livelihood or life. Here is Mississippi-born physician Richard Lee Andrews describing his awakening to the possibilities that the city offered. In probably about 1975, when I began to explore the gay culture in the city, and once I, uh, once I had my, actually, once I had my first sexual experience here, I felt, quote, liberated. I mean, I felt all the guilt I'd had all my life about these feelings completely disappeared, and from that point on, I was 100% totally and comfortably gay as far as my sexual orientation. And here is Richard Andrews on how he felt when he heard the news that city supervisor Harvey Milk had been slain. 
And a major, major turning point in my life, I know, was the assassination of Harvey. Because I went to, one, I went to the Candlelight March, which was very emotional. But probably even more significant for me was the ceremony that we had at the Opera House for Harvey, which was presided over by Governor Brown, the Supreme Court Justices, all these physicians and the president of our organization was one of the speakers at that thing. And I remember we went over there and there was already a huge line and we ended up at the balcony. I'll never forget, it still brings the emotion back to me to remember hearing time and time again different people saying things about coming out or what's in, and all of us standing up and applauding and crying and that was that was really as close to a religious experiences mm -hmm. I've had, I think. And from that point on, I think I became much more of a, an activist. This was a galvanizing moment for Andrews, a call to become active and get involved in the struggle for acceptance, security, fulfillment, and happiness. Paul O'Malley, a project manager for the San Francisco Department of Health, was forthright about what the city meant to him. It was the holiday season in 1972 when I went back to Massachusetts to spend the holiday with my family. And, but I, there were two things I was thinking. I'd like to get away from cold weather for a while. <laughs> that was part of it. But I also felt like I wanted to explore my sexuality, and I didn't, I know, it was New England backgrounds and all that. I thought I wanted to do it somewhere where I just didn't feel like I had to worry about anyone looking over my shoulder mm -hmm. or whatever. And I hadn't told my family, and I hadn't dealt with that at all at that point. And I just, for all those reasons, obviously, I wanted to be, I was closeted about it. So I moved here. One thing to sort out at this point is a common belief that the gay community was overall wealthier than average. It's true that many gay men were white professionals and that this status permitted them to mobilize resources to build and protect their community. But many gay men also led economically insecure lifestyles, which is a crucial point if we are to understand how care for the sick evolved in the city. Here is nurse Gary Carr on what happened when young gay men needed health care. In the early days of the Castro, um, very many gay men came from pretty affluent backgrounds. To the extent that a lot of us didn't, we learned from the Castro kind of society the style to make it look like we did. <laughs> um, I see. You know, I have some gay men who come into the clinic and they always look like so dapper with the jacket and the sweater and the little shoulder bag, but it's always the same jacket and the same sweater ah, and the I same see. shirt. So People the learn that kind of style, it, yeah, how to look that way. And, and so the point is that although we were all very bourgeois in terms of our values and to some extent our lifestyles, we were living very transient lives. And this was very characteristic of gay men in the 70s. We were all living very transient lives. And a lot of people were doing what I was doing. You know, the economy was such that you could do it, coming and going from jobs, mm -hmm. leaving, jo you know, leaving a job, going to live in L.A. for a few months, coming back, getting another job. And that doesn't leave you with health insurance. What was drawing these men to move between these large cities? Sally spoke with Dr. Selma Dritz, the assistant director of the city's Bureau of Communicable Disease Control, about why San Francisco was becoming such a popular place for gay men to live in the 1970s. Back in 74, the Board of Supervisors in the city, under what pressure I don't know, ruled that acts in private between consenting adults were no affair of the police. 
And that meant that there would be no more raids on baths, bars. There really weren't too many in the ways of bars at that time. The action was in the back rooms of the book house, mm -hmm. the bookstores, the back rooms of the bars, out in the bushes of Buena Vista Park, when the weather permitted. With the passage of that ordinance, the population of San Francisco in the gay community just exploded. Police had estimated that originally we might have between 30 and 40,000 gay men. I just use the word gays, mm -hmm. it's easier mm -hmm. in the city. By 75, 76, 77, they were estimating 120,000. People came from every city in the country where they were being harassed. From New York, after the Stonewall mm -hmm. uh, battle. From Moscow, Idaho, the university had a large influx there. Humboldt County in California. Texas, certainly. Um, the cowboys out in Arizona, New Mexico, who had, had to use what they called tea rooms for their contact, public uh, bathrooms and so on. They all came out here, a lot of them came to San Francisco. So you have this young, vulnerable population without easy access to health care, throwing off the disapproval, hatred, and personal shame they had experienced most of their lives. It was very much part of the broader sexual revolution in the United States, for which San Francisco was also a major center. One important consequence of all these bodies coming into sexual contact straight, gay, or otherwise, was that other organisms were coming along for the ride. But in the spring of 1981, everything changes. Gay men were coming to their private physicians, to clinics, and to the San Francisco General Hospital, suffering from a cluster of extremely rare diseases and cancers. Once admitted to hospital, they die in agony within days or weeks, after having failed to respond to any known treatment. Something new and terrifying was ravaging the immune systems of these otherwise young, healthy people. Join us next time when we'll listen to how people experienced and coped with the fear surrounding this new disease. This podcast was produced, written, and narrated by Paul Burnett. Editing by Ali Sherodis and Paul Burnett. Production and promotion assistance by David Dunham and Shanna Farrell. Special thanks to the band Do Make Say Think, whose music can be found at Constellation Records. Go to cstrecords.com or to your local record store to hear more. Berkeley Remix theme music by Paul Burnett. Thanks also to Scott Kalanico for his piece, When AIDS Was Funny, and to the archives of the Ronald Reagan Library, UC San Francisco, and San Francisco State University. All interview clips were taken from the Oral History Center collections, and the audio digitization was undertaken by David Dunham, and the student employees Marissa Uribe, Carla Palacian, Amna Hawk, Holly O'Brien, and Cindy Jin. I'm Martin Meeker, Director of the Oral History Center. Thank you for listening.